Fantastic. How's everyone doing? Good? That's great. I've had a rough morning. <laughs> so, um, hopefully, I, I woke up this morning and it, it was just a weird, hard morning, which is funny. Um, because this, this whole sermon is about, is going to be continuing our conversation on spiritual disciplines that Bryce has been having for like the past three weeks. Um, and spiritual disciplines, they're supposed to like ground you and root you. So that when life is crazy, you know, when you feel really out of control, when you feel really frustrated, um, you're, you're centered in Christ. And I just did not feel that, which is hilarious because I'm preaching on that this morning. And I, I, like, I did my, my morning rituals uh, that I do almost every single morning. And um, it didn't offer me much. And so as, as I kind of, I mean, I literally woke up threw my sermon away, re- rewrote it, just trying to figure, I'm like, Lord, I feel like I don't have a clear sense of what I'm supposed to say. Uh, it was just a bizarre morning. Um, and then I was like, how do I, how do I even start this sermon? It can't be on a, like a low note like this. And I've, I've been, I, I just finished reading through the minor prophets. And so um, the other day I started reading in Isaiah and this whole conversation kind of reminded me um, of God's very first words to Isaiah. All right, so just imagine you're a prophet, Old Testament, things are crazy, you kill people with swords, right? And all of a sudden you get this vision and it's God. <laughs> and he shows up to you, right? And, and you are trying to do everything you can because the whole world is falling apart around you. Isaiah, everything was falling apart. People, uh, there was war. People were about to be sent to exile and... God shows up to Isaiah and he says this. He says, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough burnt offerings, more than enough ram and fat animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked you of this? This trampling of my courts, Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incest is detestable to me. Your new moons, Sabbaths, and celebrations, I can't bear their worthlessness in the assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you're, you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. It's like, <laughs> Imagine hearing that. Everything you do, I could care less about. And that is God <laughs> saying it. And the reason why I wanted to open up with that is because we've been having this whole conversation about spiritual disciplines Um, about our works for Christ, implementing things in our life, creating daily rituals, because we all have them. We have daily rituals, but do we have spiritual rituals in our life that root us and ground us? And the reason I, I, I read that, and it was just an ironic thing this morning, because my rituals this morning were they weren't centered in Christ. They were, just, they were just rituals that I was doing because I knew I had to do them in order for me to get to my sermon so I could write it. 
And I, I'm standing up here and I'm like, Brian, you idiot. <laughs> the thing I'm, I'm about to be talking about, I'm doing. You see, it wasn't, it wasn't the sacrifices and the rituals that God hates. God, God loves it. When we join in rituals and, and do things for him, it's where do our heart lie? Where does our heart lie? <clears throat> the problem with Israel at that time is that they had no faith that God was actually who he was. And so I, I want to have a conversation today on this topic that we are what we love. There's this really, really good book, um, and it's called you are, we, you are What You Love. And it's this whole idea centered around we are what we love. And that's not to mean I am ice cream. <laughs> Obviously, that makes no sense. Um, but what we do creates habits that formulate what we love. Every morning, I pick up my, my son and my daughter, whoever wakes up first. It's usually Braven. Um, he's usually up at like 5.50. And the first, he looks at me and he says, chocolate milk. Because um, he loves chocolate milk. That is his morning ritual. Every day, he wakes up and wants chocolate milk. And every day I wake up, I hug him because I love him. And I get him chocolate milk. That is, that is just a ritual that I do because I love him. Rituals build within us this sense that this thing is valuable to me. And so I, I, these are kind of, I don't know. I don't know where this is going to land, really. I don't know where this is going to go. This might just be the ramblings of a crazy man. You could ask my wife. Um, <laughs> but I want us to think about spiritual disciplines, not just in a, I have to do this because my pastor told me that this would probably lead to spiritual growth. Let me just tell you, God detests that. Read any of the minor and major prophets, and there will be a section in there in which God takes big issue with Israel because they're doing things not out of faith, but because they have to. Because it's become, it's become a tradition. Traditions aren't bad. Traditionalism is bad. And I'll end there. Uh, I'm gonna, I'll start. So in college, I, <laughs> I took this class. It was incredible. It was called... Um, seven ideas that shook the world. A great class. We looked at like seven different fundamental ideas that changed the way in which we, we thought of everything. And one of them was, was Einstein's theory of relativity um, and how it, it, it brought the birth of, you know, postmodernism and, and the way in which we see and experience different cultures, people, and everything, and how it's all relative to us. And you're probably already lost. That's okay. Um, <laughs> and, and through that... <clears throat> Us as a culture, we've, we've acknowledged that words don't really have meaning, right? And there is some truth to that. Like, depending on where you're at, words can have different meaning. I'll, I'll give you a story. So when I was in, hey, Bear, he's back there waving at me. You probably need mommy. That's okay. Um, when, I was in, <laughs> when I was in, like, middle school, uh, I was on, like, an AAU basketball team, right? Um, and I was on, on a team with a bunch of my friends, and so we would travel to different cities around Ohio to play basketball. Like, it was just what we did. It was awesome. And there was a few tournaments that happened in Paris, comma, Ohio. <laughs> in Paris, Ohio. And so we would go to these tournaments, and afterwards, like, we would all get lunch together. Uh, and we would go back to school, and we would always, like, joke with our friends. Like, hey, we were in Paris. I got to go play basketball in Paris. It was awesome. And, like, a bunch of kids, like, 
what? When? Like yesterday. Like, how'd you, how'd you get back so soon? Like, oh, we just drove. It, it wasn't that long of a trip. It was 45 minutes away. Uh, and so a lot of kids, they were like, there's no way. There's no way you were actually in Paris. Uh, what I was talking about was Paris, Ohio, not Paris, France. You see, there, there is a perspective that I had of I am in Paris, Ohio, but unless you knew my story, unless you knew where I was, who I was with, what I was doing, you'd never fully understand what I was saying. And here's the thing, Scripture gives us that. Scripture isn't necessarily relative. It roots us and grounds us in a narrative, in a story, in a people that we are God's redeemed people. And it started with Adam, and it will continue until Christ returns. The incredible thing about Scripture is that it roots us and centers us in a story that we can all gather around and acknowledge things are crazy. I don't always understand this. But what we do understand is that we are a part of a narrative story. My friends weren't a part of my narrative story in being in Paris. And they didn't understand that. And that's the incredible things about, about scripture and spiritual disciplines, about prayer, fast, everything like that. It, it roots us in the narrative of who God is and what he is trying to do. Now, I'm sure, like Bryce said earlier, uh, like three weeks ago, it it's, was January, and a lot of us are creating New Year's resolutions. I'm sure who, everybody's given up on those New Year's resolutions by now, like me. Um, I had New Year's resolutions. I threw them out the window. Um, that, that's just... Too, what happened and, and who I am. But I want us to remember, or at least consider, I'll say that. I want us to consider our spiritual practices and our spiritual disciplines in a context that's a little foreign to our Protestant understanding. I think a lot of us who don't grow up in a, in a very liturgical church. We don't have a lot of quote-unquote rituals. But every day at church, we sing worship songs. We have a time of sharing. We have somebody who comes up and preaches the word. Those are all liturgies. We just don't really acknowledge them as liturgies. And so as Protestants, we really hate traditions. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed that. There are certain denominations that hate it more. We, we hate almost rituals, which is weird. Because for the past 1,900 years, the Christian church has clung, clung to rituals. Because they remind us that we are a part of a story of God's people that are being redeemed. That we are God's people who are being redeemed. In this um, book called You Are What You Love, there's an incredible quote that I love. I want to read this to you. And then I need to read, read Romans. I, let me read this first. It says, people's decisions, and I'll say this, sorry. Oh, you have them. Fantastic. I didn't think you were going to be able to get them up there. There we go. That's the quote. Uh, we had to practice music this morning, and I didn't think we were actually going to get the sermon slides up there. Thank you. People's decisions about how they intend to live determines how they think about things. Moral choices precedes 
and determines intellectual orientation. People do not think themselves into the way they act, but act themselves into the way they think. Ethical decisions more often than misguided reason lies at the heart of error. What that quote means is too often, us as, as Christians, we think, man, the only thing I have to do is read my Bible and God will give me exactly what I need to do. And if I think the right way about reading scripture, then I'll start doing that. What Christians have always believed is that is totally false. Part of following Christ is doing things, and out of doing them, we reorient our heart to God. The purpose of spiritual disciplines is not just to do them. It is to reorient our heart to God. And so with that, I want to I read... Um, I was supposed to do this earlier. I'm going to read it now. Romans, I, I hate starting a sermon without reading scripture, so I apologize. Um, this is the most important part, us hearing God's word. Um, please hear this text over any of my words today. This is Romans 8, 1 through 17, and then we're going to get to explore this a little bit together. Romans 8, it says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit set me free from the law of sin and death. I'm going to read all of it, and then we'll, we'll look at certain sections. From what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the, desire, on what the nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor does it do so, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he or she does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature, to live according to it. But if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship and daughtership. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, 
if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Amen. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for this morning that it is an incredible day. Father God, I pray that we would internalize your word to us, that it would not just be um, a mental change of who you are, but it would be a reorientation towards you and the way that we act, not only towards you, towards our family, but towards neighbors, towards the people that you call us to love. Father, I pray that something I say today lands. Um, I pray that your spirit would, would show up in an incredible way and speak to your people as we know that you do. Father God, be faithful. Even when we are unfaithful. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Belief does not drive action. Action drives belief. Could you go back to uh, Romans 1 through, or sorry, 8, 1 through 2? <clears throat> Fantastic. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Why are we talking about this? <laughs> what does this have to do with spiritual disciplines? Um, that's a great question. We're going to try and figure that out. <laughs> I want to give you a little backstory about the book of Romans, and I don't want to be too nerdy about this. I love the book of Romans. Um, Paul is writing the book of Romans. This is somewhere after 54 AD. Um, around this time, this was written in Rome. That's why it's the book of Romans. All the Jews were kicked out of Rome. They were all kicked out of Rome, and this was during the early church. And so there was only a Gentile church left. And that existed for about 10 years. And then they allowed the Jewish Christians, they allowed the Jews to, to come back to Rome. Okay? Could you imagine what would happen if this church um, split apart and after 10 years came back together? Do you think we might possibly have different ways of worshiping within 10 years? Yeah. We probably had some very different... And we're all primarily, white Anglo-Americans. Imagine having two different groups, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic statuses, different cultural identities leaving and coming back together. This is the context in which Paul is writing to. The Jews had their way of worshiping God, and it was very formulaic. And the Gentiles probably tossed that aside. And now Paul's answer to them they're trying to figure out, how do we do church again together? How can, we, how can we do church? How can we be Christ's body when we don't really worship the same? How do we even do that? And so Paul writes in response this letter, a 7,000-word letter. All right, the longest philosopher, the longest letter that we have from a philosopher in the Greek period is 4,000 words. Paul's letter of Romans is 7,104 words. <laughs> okay? Paul's answer is huge. It's not simple. It's complex. And that is why the book of Romans is probably the most written on book in the entire Bible. I mean, theologian, I mean, the entire, these two verses, if you will, it's a sentence. I mean, they have written commentaries on just this. 
So please bear with me <laughs> as we try and figure this out. Romans is often treated as just some theological expression. Wow, we've got to understand this. But here's what I want you to understand. There's a really good book um, by Scott McKnight called Reading Romans Backwards. I would invite you to read it. It's incredible. If you flip to the end of Romans at, at verse 16, or chapter 16, you see that it's written to a ton of people, okay? This book is not a theological system that Paul just wrote out that everyone needs to know. This book was an answer to a problem to a very specific group of people. And I think when we approach the Bible, we kind of forget that. We think, all right, well, this is God's word, so what do I need to understand in order to get on with my day? That was not Paul's intent in writing this. It was written to a group of people for a very specific reason. The main problem was that the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians practice following Jesus very differently. And I think we can gain an appreciation from that. So let me, I'll ask a big rhetorical questions, okay? So Brian, let's look at these verses. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death, okay? So if there is no condemnation for us, why do we have to do daily things for Christ? Like, we no longer have to earn God's grace. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross, we no longer have to earn God's grace. So why do we do what we do? Is that work considered earning God's love? Like, why can't I just wake up in the morning and read a few chapters and be done with it? There's no condemnation. That's a great question. Let's look at Romans 8, 3 through, 3 through 4. Could you throw that up there? It says this. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, meaning our flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. What's incredible about this is we could never fulfill the law. That's why when God told Isaiah, hey, all of, your, all of the things that you are doing, they're worthless to me. Because your heart isn't oriented towards me. I mean, that is hard to hear. But it's also hard to hear that in our own power, we are powerless. Totally powerless. To be a part of God's family. We can never earn God's love. We can never do enough spiritual disciplines or incorporate more spiritual practices, or, or do liturgies. We can't do anything to earn God's love. And so what did God do? He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. I mean, that's, that in itself is a crazy concept. That God literally put on human flesh and had days like I'm having right now. Like literally fumbling through life like, God, where are you? I don't... I mean, if you think Jesus was just some glowing human being that was perfect and everything was happy-dory and he just smiled through everything, like just... I mean, we read the Gospel of Mark. Jesus wept. The book of John, John lays out that Jesus was crucified because his best friend Lazarus died. 
And so he went back to see him, and that took him to Jerusalem. Jesus' best friend died. I mean, he raised him from the dead. (laughs) But he had people question him. He had people scream at him, people be angry with him. He was misunderstood. Jesus' life wasn't just some perfect, hunky-dory thing. I mean, we know that Jesus woke up early in the morning to go pray. Jesus had spiritual disciplines. He had things that he did every single day. So once again, if I'm righteous because what God has done for us, why do I need to do anything else? Do I need to do anything else? So Paul doesn't stop there. Could you put up verses 5 through 8? Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. What Paul lays out is there are two realms. There are those who live according to the flesh. And that means I am orienting my heart to live according to my own desires. To what I want to do. When I wake up, what do I want to do today? I'm an American. I get to decide. That is me parting... That's just me being free, right? (laughs) Paul says no. Paul pushes, and this is hard, because as Americans, we value our individual freedom. We value it. Here's the thing. Jesus requires that we give up our individual freedom when following him. Because he says, if you want life, live according to it by by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. It is very different than living by the flesh. I mean, we, we could go very deep in this. I don't want to do that. We don't have time. Verse 8 is shocking. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. I mean, that's literally the words God said to Isaiah. Everything you're doing right now, detestable. Does God say that about what I do? Is my heart oriented, when when I pick up scripture in the morning, is my heart's desire to be with Christ? Or is it to check a box? When When I go to bed at night and I pray, am I just doing it to check a box? Or is it to reorient my heart towards Christ? Those are tough questions. Let's continue. Verse 9 through 11 says this. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life 
because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. The spirit gives life. There's there's so many days where I wake up and I don't feel like I'm in the realm of the Spirit. I don't feel like God has declared me righteous. I feel what I feel. And that's hard. And that's broken. Much days like this morning where I'm like, what am I even doing? Have we ever asked that? What are we doing? I know that I'm I know that I'm declared righteous because of Christ's work and act, but I don't feel it. So we get to verse 12. All right, Brian. So what does this have to do with spiritual disciplines? I'm going to read the rest. From 12 on, it says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. When I picked this section in this, in this chapter of Romans 8, I wanted to explore what we do and how Christ has given us his righteousness in light of spiritual disciplines. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Paul doesn't answer the question, what do you need to do? Paul doesn't answer the question, what do you need to do, until chapter 12 of a 7,106-page letter, or word letter. Paul doesn't tell us what to do until chapter 12 of the book of Romans. Why? Because we often do what we think we need to do before even reorienting our heart to Christ. We often think, all right, what's the next thing I need? Do I need to stand? Do I need to read scripture? Do I need to pray more? What do I need to do? And what Paul says is, stop. Stop. Have you reoriented your heart to Christ? Have you thought about chapter 8 at all? Have you sat down and meditated on everything that God has done for you? I mean, Paul writes 
11 chapters on everything that God has done for us before even getting to what we should do. And when Paul gets to what we should do, it's offer yourself as a living sacrifice because there's nothing else you could possibly do. That's the only response we can have. It's not to do more. It's not to try harder. What Paul wants us to do, and the reason why I chose chapter 8, is because you can't find one single thing that Paul requires and what Christ requires us to do in response to God's love. So often we come to Scripture and we say, okay, what do I need to do? What moral can I pull from this? Is this just a moral handbook that I can find better teaching from? Good luck. It's hard to do. (laughs) There are are definitely morals within Scripture that teach us wisdom for living. But more so than that, Paul wants us to remember that we are a part of a narrative. That you are a part of God's grand narrative of redemption for this world. Paul would rather you sit and meditate on being sons and daughters in Christ's kingdom That Christ put on flesh and died for you because he loves you. Paul would rather have you meditate on the fact that you are now ruling and reigning with Christ. What does that even mean? Because I don't feel like I'm a king. I don't feel like I'm a co-heir with God. That feels like madness. And Paul says, good, meditate on it. Stop what you're doing, pause, and meditate on it. There are moments sprinkled all throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in which Jesus is going somewhere on a mission, and he pauses, and he notices. If you want to incorporate anything into your life this year, incorporate the discipline of pausing and noticing Christ. Jesus is on his way and he sees Zacchaeus in the tree. He pauses and he looks up at Zacchaeus and he speaks to him. I want to stay at your house today, Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus' life is forever changed because Jesus paused and he noticed someone that no one else noticed. Jesus pauses as he's walking through a crowd because a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years touches the hem of his cloak because in faith she believes maybe if I just touch him, My life could be different. And what does Jesus do? He pauses and he notices that that power had gone out from him. And he he sits in the middle of this giant crowd and he listens to her story. He takes time to pause and to notice. Jesus goes and meets a woman at a well. And he pauses and he hears her story. He notices a woman that no one else would take time to notice. Jesus pauses and notices because his heart is oriented towards God. And he knows exactly what he's supposed to be doing. The Bible isn't an invitation to live the right way. It's an invitation to know who you are in Christ. It's an invitation to pause and breathe 
while the entire world screams at you, this is who you are. Buy this product so that you can wear this brand because it gives you an identity. Download this app or have this phone that has this identity. Play this sport because it gives you an identity. And what, what the scriptures tell us to do is pause. No matter what culture we're in, no matter what time we're living in, is to pause and notice and remember that we are a part of God's narrative from Adam to Christ's return. And that is what defines us. And that is where the conversation of spiritual disciplines needs to start and end. Spiritual disciplines, at least when when I first became a Christian, I thought that they were just a a, a task, a to-do list. And I was horrible at them. (laughs) I was horrible at them. And that's because I didn't realize that spiritual disciplines were given and were started by the early church at pausing and to notice that Christ is trying to do something here and now. Every day um, when I wake up, I try and do this. I like, I like pour-overs. I like creating a pour-over. Um, I have a, a nice fancy grinder for coffee beans and I measure out there's 22 grams of coffee, and I, I dump it into my coffee grinder, and I set it to the right setting, and it grinds out the perfect grind, and I put it into my V60 pour-over, and I set my, my water to the exact temperature it needs to be to extract proper flavor. And every morning, um, it takes three minutes. Ten seconds, you pour 66 milliliters and then you wait 44 seconds. And then you pour <laughs> uh, the rest for 340 milliliters in total over the course of three exact minutes. And this is something that I love to do. It has become a part of my morning ritual. I love it. And here's the thing. Throughout the past two years, I've begun to incorporate Christ into that process. Every morning I wake up and I smell the coffee beans and I acknowledge that there is something beautiful here and that God sees something beautiful in me. It takes a heck of a lot longer to make coffee that way than by just dumping some coffee in a coffee maker and pressing go and then going and doing my own thing. I sit in front of a thing for almost four minutes because it's a process, an intentional process. And then I go and I take my coffee and I sip and I try and taste some flavors because it's intentional. And all through that time, you may be laughing at me, I know I'm kind of crazy, but all through that time, I'm sitting and I'm praying to Christ. Lord, I know that you're trying to do something in me today. I know that you are extracting something, that there is a process through this craziness Sometimes I just pray the Lord's Prayer over and over and over. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Sometimes I pray the ancient prayer of Maranatha, which means come Lord Jesus. What ancient monasteries used to pray day after day after day, Maranatha. 
and breathe. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Or maybe I pray the Shema, which is an ancient Jewish prayer that they prayed three times specifically at three specific times in the day. The the thing I love about that is that it forces me to pause and to notice. Where in your life have you created rituals in which you can pause and notice? There's um, a quote I want to read next. I've got a few more minutes, and I'll try and wrap this up. Um, Can you press next, and I want to see what is up there. Spiritual disciplines is joining in part of God's redemptive narrative. Awesome. I covered that. Next one. All right, we don't have it. That's okay. I will read them to you. Leave that up there. That's great. I want to read um, this quote to you. Who says this? This is from um, the book, You Are What You Love. It says, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellects, but he forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. There's another quote from the book. It says this, Christ is not found in the extraordinary. He is found in the ordinary, in the breaking of bread over and over and over, in the constant prayer of the righteous, in the orientation of worship to God daily. Following Christ is a reorienting of our hearts towards Christ as Christ has expressed God's heart to us. And so there are three things I want to invite you to do this year. You can can take these, you can throw them away, that's fine. Most Protestants have. Here's the thing, it's only been in the last hundred years. You can look through all of church history And through all of church history, the church has been rooted in reading the Psalms daily, in praying the Psalms daily, in praying specific prayers as a community daily, in reading certain scripture passages daily because they're a part of a group of people. Um, And we kind of throw that away, and whatever that may be, that's that's okay. Um, We simply often just open our Bible and read a few verses and then pray. Um, The first thing that I have found incredibly helpful for my spiritual life is called the Lectia Divinia. Lectia Divinia. It means divine lecture. And this is something that the church has been using for probably 1,800 years. There's an incredible app. It's called Lectio 365. Lectio 365. You should write it down, and you should download it if you have a phone that has apps. This is a 10-minute process in which you sit and you experience Scripture not as a God, give me something because I need it, but as I want to be reoriented towards what you're doing. And so there's four parts to Electio Divinia. You, you pause. You pause and acknowledge that God is present. That God is present and that His love is present. You reflect on a passage of scripture, not trying to ask yourself, what do I need from this? 
but simply what, God, what are you speaking? Is it a word? Is it a phrase that I need to hear? You ask, Jesus, is there anything that I need to do in response to this? And then the last part is yield. Jesus, where in my life do I need to yield to what you want me to do? It's an incredible thing. I mean, literally every morning while I'm doing my pour over or at night while I'm about to put my head on the bed and go to sleep, it is something that I get to breathe and acknowledge that I'm a part of God's story. And it is beautiful. The third, or sorry, the second is holy ordinary moments. This is something that the church has done forever. Once again, we just don't do very well. Entire monastery systems were created around finding Christ in the ordinary, in washing dishes, and acknowledging that I could be washing these dishes in service to Christ, in tying my shoe, in making my coffee, in driving to work. Whatever it may be, Christ isn't just in the mission trips and the extraordinary things that that we highlight as a church, but Christ is in the daily things. The family meals. I love putting my children to bed because when I don't pray, they ask me to. It is a part of our daily ritual. When I don't pray, like when, I, when I'm t- telling them goodnight, I'm busy, what, I'm about to leave the room, brave and, daddy, pray. Why? Because we have made it a priority in our family and our kids see and know that. I can't tell my children to pray and expect them to pray. I can build a foundation of prayer and watch as they grow into that. Right beliefs don't create right actions. Right actions create right beliefs. The church has always believed this. And thirdly, I would invite you to look into a lectionary. There's some incredible lectionaries out there. One of my favorites is the Anglican one, the Book of Prayer. And this is just a time where everybody is reading the exact same thing. I can go to, and this is weird because I'm in a Christian Missionary Alliance church, and that's okay, but I can go to any Anglican church, and I can know what they're going to be preaching on. I can know what any other Anglican is going to be reading, what psalm they're going to be reading, what gospel from the the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I can go and I can know what they're going to do because they're all doing it together. We miss out on that a lot within our American framework. Usually it's, what am I going to read today? Rather than, what are we as a corporate body reading? And how is Christ transforming us through that? What prayers are all of us going to say tomorrow as we sit down to spend time with Christ? Are we doing that? And so I I don't expect you to do all of these. If there were any one that I would say, take away, do a Lectio tomorrow morning or tonight before you go to bed. It has changed my life and created immense value in my life. And I know I've been speaking for too long. Um, Like I said, the ramblings of a madman. But if you take anything away from this, if you take anything away from this, it's this. 
God doesn't want us to do spiritual disciplines to grow closer to him. That might be shocking for you to hear. God doesn't want you to do God doesn't want you to fast. He doesn't want you to pray. He doesn't want you to read your Bible mainly to grow closer to him. It is a medium for reorienting our heart towards Christ so that Christ can begin to change us. I can never what Paul has said all through chapter 8 is I can never do what I need to do to grow closer to Christ. It is only the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. And that first starts in reorienting our hearts towards Christ. There are two paths. The path of the flesh, as we saw in Isaiah, of doing ceremony after ceremony after ceremony in which God detests because it doesn't involve reorienting our hearts towards Christ. Or is the, there is the path of the Spirit, which is doing thing after thing of the thing, prayer after prayer. Yet, it is our reorienting towards Christ through daily habits and rituals in which we see Jesus in a better way. I want to invite you all. I hope that over the past few weeks, as you have listened to Bryce, I hope that you have incorporated some spiritual disciplines into your life. Bryce challenged us to pick one. One of the great things about the Lectio Divinia is it incorporates multiple into one 10-minute period, and I love that. I would invite you to do what Bryce said to do. Find one or two and stick with it. But here's the thing. Do not stick with it because you have to stick with it. It will not produce anything in your life that is worth it. Do it because it reorients your heart towards Christ. And because in doing that, you will grow closer to Christ and realize that we are sons and daughters and co-heirs with Christ. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I hope <laughs> that anything I said stuck. Um, Father, but here's the thing. I, I trust that you are, you are working in the life of the church here and now. Father, I know that when we open our, our hearts to you, when we open scripture, that you are trying to speak to us, not just things that we need to do, Father, but ways in which we need to pause and notice. Not just in the extraordinary, but in the ordinary. In the daily rituals in which we create, Father, you want to be a part of them. Whether that be making coffee in the morning, or having breakfast as a family, singing songs, hymns, praises, washing dishes or doing laundry. Lord, we can invite you into that process. It can be a process in which we reorient our hearts towards you. Father God, show me ways in which I can create daily habits that follow you. And I pray that this church would do the same. Lord, thank you for your grace and your provision. We ask this and pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.